There's an endless road to rediscover Hey, sister Know the water's sweet but blood is thicker Welcome to the Reform Brotherhood. Brothers don't shake hands. Brothers gotta hug. I'm Tony. And I'm Jesse. Brother? I'm gonna have a brother? <laughs> I've always dreamed about having a brother. If you'd like to join our brotherhood, you can join our Facebook group. You can email us at reformbrotherhood at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter at reformbrohood. You can also subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Hey, brother-in-law. So as I mentioned, uh, we were having some technical difficulties on the last episode. So I'm releasing uh, the uh, theology lectures on uh, creation that I gave a few years ago. Uh, This is part two, and we left off talking about some of the tensions between Genesis 1 and 2. And in this uh, session, we are going to talk about some of the ways that those are resolved. All right, enjoy. So before we jump back in, does anybody want to give me a thought as to how we reconcile these texts? I know, I mean, I know you haven't had a lot of time, we just kind of it, but maybe we could go at each of these issues one by one. What, what do you think is a way to deal with the first one? Male and female are created together on the sixth day after the land animals. Genesis 2, males created first, then animals and plants, and then, uh, and then the woman. Um, I don't know. What I found that makes the most sense is that Genesis 1 is more of a very accurate chronological account. Okay. Where Genesis 2 gives us more of just an overview, and the emphasis of Genesis 2 is more <coughs> of man. Okay. Right. Okay. That's one way. I'm, I'm not convinced it works, but that's nothing against you. Um, that's, that's one of the most common ways, and I, I'm not convinced of it. But what else do we think? Let's, maybe let's go at the second one. Genesis 1, the birds are created on day 5 along with the sea creatures. And Genesis 2, the birds are created out of the earth with the land animals, on, presumably on day 6. tough one. It's one of those ones that involves little details in the text that you, if you read through it quickly, or if you read the two chapters, not run right after the other, uh, you don't see it. Does it matter though? I mean, does it really matter to, to pick this apart? Because like you had said before, you know, it's, it's, it's not make or break whether you're a Christian. It's not like the sure. trilogy. So sure. does it really, does God say, you know, spend all kinds of time trying to figure this piece out? Well, or is it important to? I would say it's important for David. <coughs> so, if you if you. So the man and woman with a different days. Right. That's significant. That's a big deal. Um, mm-hmm. But the land animals, the sea creatures. I think I think that um, it depends on what angle you're asking it for it to be. Important. If you're saying, um, is it something we should spend a lot of time on? I don't think so. I don't think it's something we should lose sleep over. However, if you're an apologist and your your ministry is convincing skeptics, this is one of the first things that you're going to run into. Right. People are going to go straight to Genesis, and they're going to go Genesis one and two are separate creation stories, and they don't they don't match. Also, 
kind of the exercise that you end up going through when you're trying to figure this out is very similar to how we have to reconcile some of the apparent discrepancies between the Gospels. There are instances in the Gospels where um, if you look at it as strict chronological um, records, they don't, they don't match up. Um, even things like in one Gospel it says there's two men, in one it says there's one angel who's sitting at the tomb. You know, we can, we can reconcile that in various ways, but we have to go through those exercises. Um, some people will just say, well, it's not important because the text is just not consistent. I don't think we can do that. We don't have the liberty of saying that because, um, well, well, we'll get to that. So I'm, we'll go ahead and skip this last one because it's an interesting question, but I don't know that it is something that I would want to spend too much time on, namely because I just don't, I don't know how solid it is in the text to actually see this as a discrepancy. So here are some methods. Method one is to ignore it. So some people will just put their fingers in their ears and pretend there's not a problem, that there's not a discrepancy, and if you bring it up, they'll probably say something like, well, why don't you just have more faith in God? Not a valid way to approach this, I don't think. Um, it might be satisfying for them. At the end of the day, it's probably not. Most of the time, that kind of strong, like, La, 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 that kind of perspective is really more about a lack of confidence in the text than it is about actual confidence in the text. Um, but it's certainly not useful for building each other up, and it's not useful for defending the faith of all. Method two would be to deny. Uh, and what I mean by that is some, some people will simply just deny inerrancy. They'll just deny that there's any reason for us to need to reconcile these texts. They're not inspired, they're not inerrant, they're probably written by different people across hundreds of years, so we shouldn't expect them to, to be consistent with each other. Um, this view generally will deny inerrancy and inspiration, although some people will um, kind of paradoxically say the text is still inerrant and that these discrepancies are genuine discrepancies but somehow are not errant discrepancies. Um, Method three would be to uh, minimize. Uh, generally, this approach sees Genesis 1 as an overview, not intended to give strict chronological precision, and Genesis 2 as a detailed account. So this is similar to what um, uh, Dave what Dave was saying. Um, Dave had it flipped, though. Dave said Genesis 2 is less specific in terms of chronology, and Genesis 1 is more detailed, is more of a strict chronological order of things. Uh, method 4 would be to allegorize, mythologize, or symbolize, uh, saying that one or both accounts is allegorical, mythological, or symbolic. I find that most often they'll say one, if, if they're wanting to affirm inspiration, they'll say one of them is historic and one of them is allegorical, or one of them is more mythological. Usually... Uh, Genesis 1 is historic, Genesis 2 is mythological. And the reason is because Genesis 2 reads more like a mythology text than Genesis 1 does. If you look at um, the way that ancient Near Eastern mythologies work, or even Greek mythology, Genesis 2 looks a lot more like a Greek mythology origins than, it do than Genesis 1 does. But sometimes they flip it, and sometimes they'll say both of them are allegorical. Excuse me, yeah, yes. just ask. Based on what she was saying, okay, I just don't like to ask, why are you calling it tensions? I'm, I'm just curious. Because if we read I Genesis, sure, if we read Genesis 1, uh, and... That's creation. Right, if we read Genesis 1, and Genesis 1 is strictly literal, with no, no interpretive 
features or no literary features, and we read Genesis 2 in the same way, then the accounts can't work together and be consistent. Um, because, like I said, in Genesis 1, male and female are created together on day 6. In Genesis 2, male and female are created separately, and the animals and the plants are created in between them. So there's a space between them. So just those two things, they can't... Okay. It requires us to understand and interpret one, either interpret one in light of the other or I somehow... Thought, I just had to make sure that yep. I was on the right page. Just in case I have to explain it to someone. No problem. Um, I mean, I, I'm getting it. Sometimes my brain is like, whoop! I hear you. Oh, and my then in, in method four, um, since they would argue, since these are not conveying history, then the discrepancies are not important enough to seek to resolve. So it would be like saying, well, Genesis 1 is talking about the majesty of God, or sometimes they'll say, well, on day one, God created light, and that was him giving us a spirit. And in day two, that was God creating uh, order in our spirit. Like, they'll allegorize it in that way. Okay. I don't think it works. But since they're not intending to convey history, there's no reason to try to make them work together. Okay. I'll go through that next page. The, the last... Uh, the last method, which is method five, I originally only had three on that first slide, so when I added the fourth, I didn't fix it. But um, there are various proposals that I've read to synthesize the accounts. It's similar to the point of view position in method three. So in method three, the minimize um, is to say the different accounts are coming at from different points of view, and from those points of view, this is the, a text is historical. So um, you see similar things more frequently when you're talking about harmonizing the Gospels. You might say, well, if, you are, if you're at a car accident, you might have someone say, I saw the red car slam into the blue car. You might have someone else say, the blue car came out of nowhere and just drove right out in front of the red car. Those two things are both true statements. They're just different points of view. But that, um, doesn't, make that doesn't hold water because God was the only person there. And if this is the inspired word of God, somebody is writing down the inspired word of God, the only right. person there during creation. Right, and I don't, I don't mean point of view like there was two witnesses and there are different accounts coming from those witnesses, but it's it, in that view it would be God is giving us different perspectives on the creation account. Okay. So generally the two perspectives are Genesis 1 is a high level overview focusing on completeness. The, the big picture of what's going on. Okay, I gotcha. Generally, Genesis 2 is going to be specifically focused on the creation and role of humanity. So those are the two points of view that they would assert. And so we interpret those saying, well, even though strictly speaking they don't line up, it's the same kind of discrepancy that you would have when one person says the red car smashed into the blue car and the other person says that blue car drove right out in front of the red car. Both of them are saying, one saying it's the red car's fault, one saying it's the blue car's fault. Neither one of them is wrong, and the, you can synthesize, or you can align the two without having to change anything about them. Um, this is my proposal. Um, I've never presented this formally in front of anybody, so <laughs> hopefully I don't get myself into any trouble. I don't think I will. Um, I take kinds of elements from that point of view theory. Genesis 1 is a picture of completed processes. God is not telling us really anything about the details of how he created anything. Um, he just simply says, this is the thing, it was created. And we see that it's, a it's speaking of the final result of the act of creation. 
and that's indicated by God declaring something or observing something as very good or good. So he says, let there be light, and there was light, and it was good, meaning God created light in a complete state. The whole, there may have been a process, there may not have been a process, we don't know, but light was a complete, finished creation. It was good. Goes on to the next thing, that was good. Goes on to the next thing, that was good. That it was good is critical. So Genesis 1 is indicating complete, final results of creation. However, God creates the man on day three before the plants, but he declares it as not good. So the act of creating human beings or humanity is not complete on day three. He creates Adam, but it's not finished yet because it's not good. He then goes on to create the plants and he places man in the garden on the back half of day three. He then creates the sea creatures and the birds on day five creates land animals on day six. Man names them along with the birds. He then creates the woman after the animals and plants on day six, as well as after the naming. And that's what it's speaking of in Genesis 1. On day six, he finished the creation of humanity and said it was good. Right? So he creates Adam first. Get one sec, let me finish it, and then we can, we can go to questions. God then declares all of creation very good at the end of day six after humanity has been finished being created with the man and the woman living in a married relationship in complementarity. And it's no longer not good. So anywhere in the text when we read good, we should see the word complete. And anywhere when we see not good, we should think incomplete. Yes? So could you just qualify one thing for me here just so I can... Get a clear understanding of where you're going. Sure. Not good. Right. Does that mean that God created something that was not good? Well, we shouldn't think of not good in moral terms. We should think of good in terms I'm thinking of. Thinking strictly qualitative. We should think of it in terms of incomplete, in my understanding. So when God declares, He says, "Let there be light," and He saw that it was good, He's seeing that it was completed. It was finalized. It was the way it should be. God creates humanity, the man, in a state that's not the final state he intends it to be. So he creates man. It's not as though God made man like, oh man, I should Oops. do something about this. Right. God well, creates God man. Like that because in the book of Psalms, God says that, that we are fearfully and wonderfully right. made. Right. So he creates, we'll just say Adam for simplicity's sake. He creates Adam on, on day three. Because in Genesis 2, he creates him before the plants. So it has to be day three because the plants were created on day three. Okay, so I just, I, I want to be sure that we're both clear that, that it's not possible for God to create something that isn't good. Right, yeah, so it's, it's not that God created it. Or made a mistake. Right, when he says it's not good, it's, an, it's in effect him saying, I'm not finished with this. This is not complete yet. And then he goes on, he... I would say in some senses, since Adam is a sentient being who's a thinking and feeling being, that the naming of the animals, some people will look at the text and go, man, God wanted to find a helper, so he made all these animals and brought them before Adam, and then he saw those helpers were not good. It's not like, it's not like God thought he was going to bring a golden retriever before Adam, and Adam was going to go, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and want to marry the dog. No, he was bringing these animals before Adam, so Adam could see that it was not a good fit for him. Right. That it was not an appropriate helper. Then he makes Eve, Adam immediately recognizes, this is the appropriate helper, this is the bone Amen. of my bone. 
So that process was in place, I think, mostly for instructive purposes for Adam. That's some speculation. But it, said, it says something about a flaw in God's ability to create something good the first, you know, first time. I, I don't think say, so. He could have done it that way. And then part two is that um, that you know we were created before. Um, what is the scripture that says we were created before the creation of the world? What's the scripture that says? He knew us. We weren't knew us. So if he, he, he knew us, then why did he have to say, oh, well, this isn't, you know, I'm not complete, right. I'm not finished with this, this is a process, so, I need to come back to this. So if I'm baking a cake, and I um, I put all the ingredients together, I've got it all mixed up, turn on the oven to preheat, even though I should have preheated the oven first for my cake. But you have all your ingredients already. Right. But I put it together, I might walk away from it and go, I'm not finished with this, and then go do something else. But you've got your frosting on the counter. No, I get that. But I might go and do something else and then come back and finish the cake. And when I'm done, I might say, the cake is not finished. If I tell that story later, I might say, well, I put all the ingredients together, and then I went and did something else, then I put the cake in the oven. Or I might say, well, I went and worked on a paper for class for a little while, and when I was finished, I, I finished the cake. Or so I made the cake. Adam took more time to create than you. It's not that he had to. No, it's, it's, and it's, it's, it's not that God tried to create humanity as a whole, and then was like, oh, shoot, it's not finished yet. It was that God intentionally did it as a process. God intentionally created Adam first. Mm -hmm. Because, I don't know about you, but a lot of times I have to learn by experiencing something. Mm -hmm. I have to, there are things that if I was just given them and I didn't have to work for them, I would take them for granted. Mm -hmm. The fact that I had to pursue my wife and I had to learn about her and I had to romance her, I had to ask her dad if I could date her, I had to ask her dad if I could marry her. All of those things are, I think, in place by God in some ways to help me understand how much I should value my wife. I think that God created Adam, then he brought all the animals before him to see what was not appropriate for him to be in that relationship with. So Adam could learn it. It's not like God had to go, well, let me try the dog, let me try all... I don't know, the monkey looks a little bit more like Adam than the dog does. <laughs> oh, look, look at that gorilla. The gorilla looks almost just like him. But it's not like that. perspective saying, you know, from the false perspective, you know what I mean? Like, Adam's mm. looking at things like, well, measuring them, judging, well, is this good enough, isn't it? I mean, do I you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I don't think that that kind of, I don't think that kind of de deliberation in creatures is a result of the fall. I think that Adam could have, yeah, I'll get you in a second, Liz. I think that I think that Adam had to learn things. He had to learn how to garden in some sense. That's God probably taught him. Well, he ate the apple, so what did he? Right, but it's not as though Adam came. It's not as though Adam, you know, God breathed the, the uh, breath of life into Adam and sprang up and was a fully functional, completely equipped gardener. He knew. Right. He had to learn how to do things, um, and so there was still a. a appropriation of knowledge and appropriation of experience that had to happen. And so for Adam's benefit, so he would know he would know what was the right fit for him by having first seen all the things that were the wrong fit for him. He was then able to immediately recognize Eve as his partner, the bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. To the desire of relationship, exactly. wanting relationship. Exactly. So I would say that God created Adam first on day three after uh, before the plants, after obviously after the dry land had been gathered together, mm -hmm. he creates Adam, he causes the plants to spring forth, 
He then creates the animals. There's still a discrepancy in here in terms of the birds. I don't know yeah, where the birds are. That makes sense from. because if he, he, he's Adam and then Eve, then he wouldn't notice anything else. Exactly. You look at Eve and that's, that's the right. end all be all. Right. So what I think this does is it allows us to look at the perspective of Genesis 1 as completed actions. Mm -hmm. God, God finished his work of creating humans as a fully complete creation on day 6 when he was created and when the marriage took place. That doesn't mean he didn't start it on day 3 with Adam. But it wasn't good. It wasn't complete. So when we read good, we tend to think of like morally good or like qualitatively good. The idea of good or like virtuous in Hebrew thought as well as in Greek thought is more about completeness. Hebrew, the word shalom in, in Hebrew is about completeness. Things are the way they should be. So when God declares the light good, or he observes that the light is good, he's observing that it's complete in the way it should be. When he observes that the man is not good, he, he is saying, this is not a complete finished product yet. I'm in the middle of this. Then he goes and finishes that work. So what we tend to think is because we see God creating light and then it was, God says this and then it was, we tend to think of that as no process in play. It simply happened instantly. But we don't know that there wasn't a process. I'll get to you in a sec. Liz had a question. Um, well, actually, I've heard an explanation that I don't know how, um, how solid it is, but it kind of makes sense to me, is that the, the way and the order in which God created the man and the woman was directly related to the roles he gave them as male and female. Like, okay. So he creates Adam, and the first thing he does with him is he gives him a job to do, to tend the garden. And then um, he creates Eve, and the first thing he did, he immediately brings her to the man. So her first experience is relationship, his first experience sure. is his task. Sure. Yeah, and I think that's, I don't know that I would want to stand on that too much, because the text is not super clear. It doesn't tell us that explicitly, but sure. Um, I think that's absolutely the case. Cecilia? I, I think just in terms of preparing man to understand the creation, he had to break it down into periods. Sure. What if he had presented to into the universe the whole earth and all of the beings and everything at work at one time? You and I wouldn't know anything. Yeah, and that's exactly what St. Augustine did. He looked at it and he goes, well, I, obviously God created this all instantly. But in order for us to have any comprehension of the universe, he had to present it to us in this way so we could break it down into an understandable sequence. Because our brains, for Augustine, time was a big issue. Our brains are locked into sequence. That's right. This happens before this happens before this. So if we were presented with something that wasn't sequential, we don't have a framework for it. But yeah, that's a very good observation. But I think it strikes me as we talk about process, too, that... It, it is exactly what we see throughout Scripture. That's the, thing. the process of the Israelites, you know, getting to and what God is doing with them every step of the way. Prepare them to be able to be in the place that He wants them sure. to be. There's always that preparation that He's working in a process, even with us. You know, sure. we we're saved, but then there's a process. Saving right, and and so that seems to be His mode of operation Absolutely. throughout Scripture. Yeah. In, in who but God would have more of an understanding of how important a relationship is? Right. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk about that a little bit when we get to the end of the day. 
Really quick uh, personal note, Genesis 2 is near and dear to my heart. My proposal to Ashley was basically an extended exegetical look at, at Genesis 2. Um, so if you want, I can... Yeah, I did. She asked for a public proposal. And so I actually arranged... Uh, we, there was a coffee shop that was done at Gordon Conwell that had, like, you know, mostly acts and stuff. And I arranged to be the MC. And then during the inter just before the intermission, I gave this explanation of Genesis 2 and how Genesis 2 was built on the idea of soulmates. And how every... Most cultures, the reason that men and women are attracted to each other is because they were originally one creature who were split into two. And so in order, the only part that was not replicated was their souls. I don't think that's what the Bible's teaching. But in order to feel complete, they were drawn back to the other half of their soul. And that's where the term soulmate came from. So I talked about that and, and related it to Genesis 2, how Adam had to see all the things that were not right for him before he could recognize the one that was. And that, I mean, that directly related to my story. Wow, you so, yes. <laughs> I see like a blockbuster movie being written around this. So, so this, and, and I think, I think that's an example of the way that even though the Genesis was not intended to be a romance story, it wasn't intended to give us ideas for how to propose to our, our girlfriends and then get married. But it gives us a real picture into the very makeup of human beings. The reason men are attracted to women when things are working the way they're supposed to be working. It's because that complementarity exists. That's the reason men and women are supposed to be together as opposed to men and men or women and women. So we'll talk a, we'll talk a little bit about that when we get to the I will fall. tell any woman, it is awesome to have a saved husband. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Seriously, it's just awesome. All right, we're going to move into uh, anthropology, which is uh, just the theology surrounding kind of the makeup and constitution of human beings. It's not the normal discipline of anthropology, which is mostly about religions and cultures and archaeology. It just happens to be the same term. So there are two basic views on human constitution. There's what's called the dichotomist position, and there's what's called the trichotomist position. Uh, it doesn't take a lot of language skills to see that the dichotomist position believes that humans are fundamentally made of two kinds of things, and the trichotomist thing uh, believes humans are fundamentally made of three kinds of things. So the dichotomous position, and this is the view that I hold, basically says that human existence is broken down into the material, which generally is associated with the body, and the immaterial, which would generally be associated with the spirit or the soul, which are usually held to be synonyms. So I hold this view. I actually don't hold spirit and soul to be synonyms. I would, um, I would still be a dichotomist, but I would consider soul to be a different kind of description. The trichotomist would say that human existence is broken down into the material body, the immaterial soul, and a, a, some sort of personal substance, um, which would be the soul. So we talked when we talked about Apollinarianism, we talked about how there was the um, there was the body, there was the mind, and then there was the rational soul. So we can see an example of that trichotomist view in play that there was a human body. There was the immaterial mind, and then there was the rational soul, which is kind of the seat of personhood. There are strengths and weaknesses to both of these views. Uh, primarily, the difficulty is that this, the, um, the Bible seems to use language that could go either way on this. So like I said in the Genesis 1 account, or Genesis 2 account, God creates a body, he breathes a spirit into it, and that becomes a soul, becomes a living creature. Mm -hmm. 
However, we have passages uh, like in Hebrews where it says the word of God is sharp and active, and cutting between spirit and soul. Oh, that's so there's, there's language that can go both ways. So it's difficult to say with any sort of certainty. I think that the dichotomous position is more defensible uh, than the trichotomous position. But um, there's also what's called a Christian physicalist position, uh, which would say there's no such thing as the immaterial and that our spirits are a feature of our physical bodies. So our spirits are, are they emerge from a physical property. And, and it's very close to naturalism, how naturalism, just a, a straight secular naturalism would handle the mind. That our mind is not necessarily a physical thing, but it's an emerging property from our, from our brains. So even though it's, it's not separate from our brains, we have to handle it separately. So there is a position called Christian physicalism which would take that kind of approach with, um, with the composition of humanity. Now, it doesn't mean they deny all immaterial um, realities. So they would generally still say that angels are immaterial entities. They would certainly say that um, God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son's holy, uh, divine nature are immaterial. Um, but they would deny any sort of immaterial existence to humans. I don't think it's a defensible position, but um, there are all sorts of ways they go about it. Genesis uh, 1 specifically talks about the imago Dei, or the image of God. There are all sorts of proposals that have been made throughout the history of the church as to what this specifically means. The most common are going to be kind of the interrelationality of persons that we are built in a way where we recognize relationships between each other. And they would say this is what reflects, this is what makes us look more, gives us the image of God. Um, some would put it in the area of speech, that the fact that we can communicate via speech or written language uh, makes us in the image of God. Someone put it specifically in the arena of love, that our capacity to love selflessly at times is what makes us in the image of God. Other things might be things like rationality and the ability to use logic. Um, uh, some would go so far as to say there are physical characteristics that make us in the image of God. Standing upright is one of the most common ones you see in the early patristic testimony. The uprightness of humanity is what makes us in the image of God. Um, I was sort of convinced by that argument until a friend of mine in seminary who was confined to a wheelchair explained to me how wrong that was. So we have to be really careful with these because sometimes we put, um, so rationality, for example, is someone who, su who suffers a severe cognitive disability and has no ability to, to use rationality or logic, or someone who's in a vegetative state. Are they no longer in the image of God? So we have to be careful as we apply these. Um, in reality, it's probably a combination of these things. There's probably various aspects of what it means to be human that are in humanity because of the Imago Dei. Um, the other flip side of that is that we have very good evidence that animals like dolphins and dogs and pigs and elephants are interrelated with each other. Um, you can take an elephant away from its herd for 50 years, bring it back to its herd, and its herd will celebrate its return, and they'll recognize it in specific ways. You can do the same thing with dolphins. There's a documentary called Blackfish, which is about orcas in captivity at SeaWorld, and um, there was an orca who gave birth at the facility, and they took that calf, brought it to another facility, and for the next 20 years, that mother uh, sent out distress cries that are the kinds of cries that in the wild they would send out to locate a calf that, calf that had swam away. So there was a clear interrelatedness in those animals. 
So if interrelatedness by itself is the, is the Imago Dei, elephants and orcas are in the Imago Dei, but we know they're not. So we can't limit it to just that. Speech, well, how do we define speech? Uh, dolphins use complex vocal patterns that seem to indicate a language of sorts. Different orca pods uh, have different vocalizations. They speak different languages. Uh, love, I don't know about you, but uh, Ashley's parents have a brand new uh, West Highland Terrier puppy they got in January, and that dog has a lot of love for just about everybody. Genuine love at times. Um, I would say that that's not exclusively a human thing. You can look at things like bonobo chimps in certain parts of uh, Africa that will do crazy, amazing, selfless things to protect not genetically related members of their troop. Um, you can't always explain that as simply trying to preserve your own genes, which is what the scientific community has to try to do. Um, so we have to be careful how we apply this in both directions. And this is important because this is one of the, I think, one of the most common mistakes that we make when we think about humans. Humans are not, in light of their nature, immortal. So the idea that we have an immortal soul that, regardless of what happens, will exist forever simply in light of its very nature is simply not a biblical concept. So in the Bible, the reason that humans or anything persists from one moment to the next is not found in us. It's found in the fact that God sustains us. So if God decided right now to withdraw his sustaining presence from the universe, it would simply stop existing. It's not like it would fade out, fade to gray. It would just gone. So humans are no different. So in the garden, we talked about it uh, when we were talking about the, the second Adam discussion. In the garden, if Adam had been cut off from his source of existence, which was God, he would have ceased to exist. That's why he had to go to the tree of life to eat from the tree of life in order to be immortal. It wasn't something inherent in the human condition. Yes? I think it's also important to remember that we were created in the image of God before the fall. Correct. And so any flaws that we may have happened after the fall, not before the true, fall. True, true. Yeah, and so, so we can look at that and, and the fact that we don't sustain our own existence is not a flaw. God designed, well, I, I shouldn't say God designed it that way because we're, we're contingent beings necessarily. God could not create a non-contingent being because when you create something, that thing is now contingent. But, um, yeah, so our flaws, are I wouldn't say our limitations, but things that are wrong with us um, certainly are a result of the, of the fall. But we have to be careful because some people would say lack of knowledge or lack of ability to comprehend certain things is a, is a limitation um, that is a result of sin. I don't, I don't think that's the case. Like I said, Adam had to learn things. He had to presumably learn how to garden. He had to you know, learn how to do all sorts of things. Um, there were things he didn't know. He didn't know he was naked. Or at least it didn't, didn't feel ashamed of it. Uh, although, God says, who told you you were naked? So it seems like he didn't even, re he didn't even realize that he was naked. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's a good, a good observation. Tony? This question about um, point of origin and, and duration. Sure. Uh, the body itself uh, has, a, has a point of our origin, and then it, and it, there's an end point there, too. It returns to dust. Sure. Is there anything said about spirit? Uh, does it have a point of origin? Sure. There are different perspectives on the point of origin of the spirit. Um, some would say that God creates it sort of sort of ex nihilo, that our, our bodies come about as a union of sperm and egg in, um, in the sexual act. 
and that's the point of the origin of the body. But our spirit is created sort of ex nihilo or de novo and put into a body. There are other lines of thought, and this is where I would go, that our spirits themselves somehow are a result of the union of our parents in the sexual act. That our, our spirit is created the same way, in a similar or analogous way to our bodies. And the reason that I would say that is because there seems to be a connection in scripture, I'll say genetic for lack of a better word, but there's a, a genetic hereditary nature to sin, that the sin nature is passed down from our parents to us somehow. Um, genetic is probably not the right word, but that's, I think, the best we've got. Um, and that's not, that's not isolated to our bodies. Our spirits are, are tainted by sin too. So we have to either say that our spirits are somehow created and come from our sinful parents and that's how they get sin, which is why I go that way, or we have to say that our um, spirits are created in a sinful state by God, de novo, or uh, ex nihilo, which is a problem, I think, um, to say that God creates, creates our spirits in a state where they're tainted by sin. Um, so I lean towards the idea that our spirits have a point of origin that somehow comes about in, um, in the sexual union of our parents. Um, but I don't know. And, and I would even say if you look at the temperaments of children, the temperaments of children are often, often seem to be related to their parents too, in similar ways to our bodies. That I look like my dad. I have the same color skin. Um, I was really skinny until I was about 18 years old, and then I started to put on weight. Same thing my dad did. So like even things like that. But my temperament is very much like my mom's. And, you know, that's the nature-nurture debate. And, you know, science would say, well, those temperaments are genetic. Maybe. But I would say that some of that is, is coming in a hereditary fashion in our spirits as well. And the other end? The way that God has structured the universe, it seems like he's sustaining our spirits. That he's sustaining spirits that are going to be resurrected and reunified with their bodies, as well as sustaining spirits that are... Um, currently in the intermediate state um, of punishment and then will be reunited with their bodies and placed into the eternal state of punishment with their bodies. Um, I don't think there's a, it's a, not a natural feature of our spirits that, they're, that they don't have an endpoint. I think that God has just decided to sustain our spirits. Um, and there's, there's lots of debate on how and why that happens or if it happens. There's a whole branch of Christianity called conditional, uh, conditional immortality which basically says that part of the punishment of hell is that God's, God, over time, withdraws his sustaining presence, and at some point when our sins have been appropriately punished, he allows us to, to stop existing. Um, which is slightly different than annihilationism, where destruction is actually the punishment. Um, conditional immortality actually sees the allowing us to stop existing at the end of our punishment as an act of mercy. That that's God's final act of mercy, is to let us stop existing. Um, so there's different difference. I, I think that our souls apart or our spirits apart from God's sustaining presence would cease to exist, but that He has chosen to sustain the existence of all human spirits for the rest of time. What What about this statement that our sin is is directed against an infinite God, therefore requires an infinite punishment? Sure. Um, I'm going to put a pin in that because we have a whole section on the eternal state, including hell. So I would say that's a valid argument. That's kind of the direction I go. Um, 
Where it gets to be a problem, though, is that that tends to be rooted in feudalistic ideas of the worth of... That gets phrased in ways, if you were to try to translate that into human experience, to say, um, well, if I punch the president in the face, I deserve more punishment than if I punch a homeless person in the face because of the dignity of their office. Some people would say, sure, if you, if you punch the president because you're punching the, the president, um, it's, it's a more severe punishment than if you punch some schmo on the street. Um, some people would say, well, no, he's, he's just a human person like everyone else. So I think that that argument gets complicated because different ideas of what justice is and how it's been, been applied throughout the ages. Um, but something along that line, I think, is a, is a valid argument. Um, there are other Christological reasons that I would say that the soul persists or the spirit persists is that when Christ became human and unified himself with human nature, he changed the way human nature functions and now sustains it. And so now all humans are sustained permanently because of the union of Christ with, with the human nature. And so either we can be existing eternally in a positive relationship if Christ is taking care of our sin, or now we can exist in a non-positive way with God eternally if Christ is not taking care of our sin. So there's different ways to, to go about it. And I think in reality it's probably a combination of those. The reason that it is appropriate for God to punish us forever is because we've sinned against an infinite, infinitely dignified God. Um, the reason that we actually persist forever is probably because uh, related to the fact that Christ took on a human nature and that changed humans in some way. Alright, I think, okay, two more, we got time. So, I want to talk about the task and the test. So, a particular feature of Reformed theology that is sort of, prompt, sort of present in other branches, but is really present in Reformed theology, and then I'll, I'll talk about my book recommendations, is that Adam was given a task and a test. And had he fulfilled that test, he would have been given the blessings of the covenant that he was under. So, God covenantally created Adam and said, here is my promise to you. If you spread the garden to the rest of the world, and you don't eat from the tree of evil, good and evil, then I will grant you permanent access to the tree of life, and you will live. You have earned your immortality, a permanent access to the tree. Of course, Adam failed, which is why he doesn't have access. So I want to talk about those, those tasks real quick. The first is sometimes called the cultural mandate. It was given first to the man in his... A directive to protect and tend the garden. It was also given ex by extension to the woman implicitly in Genesis 2 in that her task was to help Adam in his task. And then it was given both, given to both explicitly in Genesis 1 by the command to fill the earth and subdue it. So no matter how you slice it, both men and women are responsible for this task. We can't pin it on one gender or the other. Um, the idea is that apart outside of the garden, which God himself structured, the rest of the earth was still sort of in a state of being formless and void. So the, the land was wild, there was jungles, it wasn't organized in a garden, there was no dwelling places. And God's task is to now for Adam to take that and to spread the garden, to go out and structure the world, to make what God created in the garden spread to the rest of the world. There's also the creation mandate, which is not given just to humans, but also to the animals. And the command is to be fruitful and multiply. And it's not just that the humans are to reproduce the garden, 
they're to reproduce themselves as well. Uh, this is also given to the water and air creatures as well as to the land animals as an extension of the command to humans. So the, the land animals in Genesis, um, in Genesis 1 are never told to be fruitful and multiply. Adam and Eve are told to be fruitful and multiply at the end of, uh, at the end of day 6. But by extension, the fact that he is speaking to the humans who are in part part of the land animals um, would extend it to the animals as well. And the only real prohibition other than don't, don't do this, uh, the only actual prohibition was to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as federal head of humanity, Adam was expected to convey this prohibition to his descendants as well and then also to his wife. He appears to have communicated this to his wife. This is why I, I say things like mistakes don't necessarily equal sins in the garden because either Adam didn't tell her right because when she repeats the command to the snake she doesn't get it right. She says she's not even allowed to touch the tree which was not part of the original command. So it could be that Adam wanted to help her and put a little hedge in there that well no, not just don't just not eat from it but don't even touch it. Um, or Eve got it wrong. We don't know where the miscommunication came in. But it seems like there was a miscommunication somewhere. And I want us to think uh, until next week about some what ifs. What if Adam had accomplished his task? Well, he would have been given permanent access to the, to the tree of life. So part of the Genesis account is that Adam is in a sort of unstable condition. He has, he appears to have immortality. He appears to be a fully functional being with uh, access to the tree of life. I've said before, we don't know whether he was being sustained directly by God or whether he was going to the tree every day and eating of the tree of life. I don't think that they were in the garden for very long, so I don't think it really matters all that much. Um, I would say they were probably in the garden less than a month, if I had to speculate. And we'll talk about why that is next week when we talk about getting kicked out of the garden. Uh, this also, this access to the tree of life also would have been obtained for anyone under the headship of Adam. So one of the questions that comes up we were talking a little bit about earlier in the break is when they get kicked out of the garden, Cain kills Abel and then Cain goes to a city. Well, where did the city come from? Where did the people in the city come from? It appears like they get kicked out of the garden, they have kids, Cain and Abel grow up probably to their late teens, early 20s when this, the, the death happens. Excuse me. Well... Where are the people coming from? They're certainly, they're not older than Cain, because the only person, I don't think, I think Cain was the firstborn. So Cain was the firstborn of Adam and Eve. Where, where do these other people come from? And how did they build a city? So there's questions that we have to ask about the text. I don't think we can say, well, God created a bunch of other people, and it's because of the federal headship of Adam. They would not have been under sin the way that we're under sin, because they had no connection to Adam. And then we don't know for sure what would have happened if, uh, if one of Adam's descendants had eaten. So one of the common, common ways to respond to the what if Adam had not eaten is, well, somebody would have done it eventually. The problem with that is that, as far as we know, when Eve ate the apple, nothing happened. It wasn't an apple. But when Eve ate the, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, nothing happened. It wasn't until Adam took the fruit and ate it that the fall happened. It wasn't like Eve took a bite... The indication of the text is Adam was standing right next to her. So it's not like he was off doing something else and came up and she's like, here. But in that moment between when Eve ate and handed it to Adam and Adam ate, Eve didn't recognize she was naked and suddenly recognized something was wrong. 
But when Adam took the bite, they immediately knew they were naked and were ashamed, and they hid. So I would say most likely it would have been whoever the federal head, Adam, would have been his responsibility to chastise the person who ate it. And had he done his responsibility, then either that person would have suffered the consequences and been killed, or they would have been restored because the federal head was still solid, was still, uh, had still not fallen. And as I said, possibly the individual would have been punished. So had, had Eve eaten and handed it to Adam and Adam said, what are you doing and thrown it away? I think most likely Adam would have then been responsible for chastising his wife and probably imposing some sort of consequence. But that was his responsibility to do and had he done it, creation would not have fallen. That's all speculative though, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't hang my hat on it too much. Uh, what if I'm